From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She was arrested, wrongfully incarcerated, and her case has even inspired a new law in Colorado. But is that law a sanctuary policy for undocumented immigrants? And why does she still face an uncertain future? Then a Colorado researcher is heading to the North Pole. We'll sail out into the sea ice and kind of break our way in there a little bit and anchor ourselves to a chunk of ice that'll be our our home for the year. Plus, a bicyclist rides the Continental Divide to document the wide-ranging effects of climate change. Also, a unique piece of Colorado history on display for the first time in a century. It's pretty substantial. It's several feet tall, and it makes you feel this grandiose sense of vision and gratitude. And we trace the origins of the CU-Nebraska rivalry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Claudia Valdez Sandoval inspired a movement in Colorado that eventually led to a state law banning local law enforcement from holding people in county jails for longer than their sentences at ICE's request. Now the 40-year-old Aurora woman faces an uncertain future living in the United States. CPR's Allison Sherry went to what could be her last hearing on whether she can stay in the country. Hi, Allison. Hey, Avery. Who is Claudia Valdez Sandoval? So Claudia arrived from Mexico illegally in her early 20s back in 1999. Um, She's now a mom of three teenagers. She lives in Aurora. She cleans a retirement home as her day job. She has no criminal record, but um, this whole story started back in 2012. She was in a relationship with a violent partner who both verbally and physically abused her, and is also the father of her three children. She told a judge, an immigration judge, that he was working at a kitchen, was using a lot of cocaine and drinking way too much. They had a fight one Sunday. She was at church. She came home, um, and he had a knife, and he was threatening her. So she ran across the street. She asked her children, her neighbor, to hold the children so they wouldn't be around for all this. And she came back to the house, and they were sort of arguing, and she scratched his nose. And she told a judge because he was using so much cocaine that it bled more easily. Um, She asked her oldest daughter to call the police when she dropped her kids off at the neighbor's house. And when they arrived, they actually arrested her and not him because there was blood coming from his face. But now there's been, you know, broad agreement that she was wrongfully incarcerated by Arapahoe County Sheriff's. She actually even won a $30,000 settlement for that wrongful incarceration. But what's important here is that they also tipped off ICE of her presence. And ICE asked Arapahoe County Sheriff's to hold her for them. And so she was in jail for even longer than she would have been. And even though a judge ordered her to be released and she didn't have any criminal charges filed against her and she won this settlement, she was then started down this road to deportation. So how did she become the inspiration for a state law? Well, after that 2012 incident, Um, and she got that settlement from Arapahoe County, the ACLU started to work with sheriffs across the state to stop holding people on detainers. And these are the requests from ICE to local law enforcement to hold people in jail beyond their sentences or after they've posted a bail to give ICE time to get wherever that person is. Sheriffs had been doing this across the state, but after Sandoval won her settlement agreement, largely sheriffs agreed to stop doing this. But then what happened was with this new 
president and this presidential administration, it kind of started happening again. And immigrant advocates um, were really pushing Governor Jared Polis and the legislature to codify this policy into law, to make it to make it a law and not just kind of make it a, an agreement. And so that's what happened this last legislative session. And Governor Polis signed the law. So now law enforcement, for the most part, can't hold people at ICE's request anymore. Here's her lawyer, Hans Meyer, talking about this. One case that's endemic of a major systems problem. Here we had illegal detainers all over the state of Colorado for decades. And that created a conversation that we could have about what is and isn't legal. Um, And we were able to make those changes. All that's fine and dandy, but Claudia Valdez is still fighting tooth and nail to stay with her children. Immigration advocates think this makes communities safer, right? Yeah, they think that when communities of people are afraid of local police, it makes everyone less safe. And that includes domestic violence. So if Claudia, back in 2012, was afraid that she was going to be deported if she called police, she probably wouldn't have called police. And there was a man threatening her with a knife. And so I think, you know, immigrant advocates and a lot of other people think that when a crime is taking place, people should feel very comfortable, no matter who they are, calling 911. Um, and not worrying about their immigration status. And what does ICE say? ICE calls this particular policy a sanctuary policy. And the way they explain detainers mostly is that there are a limited number of ICE agents across the state and that they sometimes need a little extra time to get to a county jail to pick someone up after they've served a sentence um, or after they've posted a, a cash bond. And they say that before the state law was passed that they never abused detainers, that they weren't holding, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people on detainers, that it was like sort of the worst of the worst. Now, I don't think Claudia Valdez Sandoval falls into this. And, you know, this was years ago. And I think the detainer law has kind of morphed over the course of years and ICE and relationships with sheriffs and, and whatnot. But they say that now that they don't have this tool, when they go pick up people who are being released from jail, that it makes Coloradans less safe. I want to go back to Claudia Valdez Sandoval, because you said that 2012 event, it started her down the road to deportation. Where is her case right now? So she had her final determination hearing this week on Tuesday. It lasted a few hours. Um, I don't know. Most people listening to this probably haven't been to an immigration deportation hearing, but they're kind of intense. It's one person sitting on um, at a stand. There's a judge there. There's an interpreter there. There's a lawyer from the Department of Homeland Security. And then she had her own defense uh, counsel, a, a prominent immigration lawyer here named Hans Meyer. And she, you know, on, over the course of several hours, made this case that it would be a major hardship for her family if she were deported. Um, her kids have had anxiety and depression disorders, both because they had a violent father, but also because they're so stressed out about their mother's future. And this hardship argument is actually a legal, technical argument. And it's a high bar to make in front of a judge. But her lawyer submitted 400 pages of proof and testimony that that it would be hard for her three children, all of whom are American citizens, um, it would be hard on them for her to leave and get deported to Mexico. So did the judge make a decision? The judge did not make a decision. Um, After these several hours of testimony, at one point, um, Claudia Valdez Sandoval started sobbing, talking about the the violence that she endured. At one point, one of her kids had a panic attack in the courtroom. So it was kind of a lot of drama. Um, After all of this, the judge says, thank you, and kind of left. And so, you know, she can make a decision at any point. Um, Claudia Valdez Sandoval is seeking a green card. And the fact that the judge did not rule from the bench, you know, no or yes, 
um, Claudia's lawyer is hoping could be a good sign that if she was going to deny this and deport Sandoval, she would have done it right then and there. Um, And she's hoping that, you know, with time, there will be a decision that she can stay in the country legally. And until there is a decision, what does she do? She says she's going to resume her life. Here she is in her own words. Sí, voy a seguir normal con mi vida, mi trabajo, seguir aprendiendo inglés, seguir adelante. She goes back to her normal life. I think this hearing was a lot of stress on the family. Um, you know, the kids had knew this was coming. And um, so she was, everybody seemed very relieved this was over afterwards. Um, she's going to go back to working as a housekeeper, raising her kids, as you might think. Three teenagers are kind of a handful. Um, and she's also taking classes to learn English. She really wants to be able to speak English. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Avery. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry joining me to talk about the case of Claudia Valdez Sandoval. Valdez Sandoval inspired a new state law that limits police cooperation with ICE, but she also faces an uncertain future, despite a settlement for wrongful incarceration. Here's an unusual ride to work. We're going to hop on the icebreaker Polar Stern in Norway, and then we'll sail out into the Arctic Ocean and eventually out into the sea ice and kind of break our way in there a little bit and find a place to park and anchor ourselves to a chunk of ice that'll be our our home for the year. That's CU research scientist Matthew Shoup, who's leaving Monday to live atop the sea ice near the North Pole. Shoup helped come up with an idea for a project called Mosaic that's drawing scientists from around the world to study climate change. But there's some enormous challenges ahead. Matthew, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been traveling to this area of the Arctic for your whole career, 22 years. Will you paint a picture of what it looks like there and what it feels like? The Arctic is uh, fantastically diverse. It's got Arctic tundra, it's got sea ice, ice sheets, so many different scenes. And, you know, each time I've been there, there's been kind of a unique manifestation of the Arctic with all kinds of different ice. The sun is amazing, especially in summertime when it circles the sky. The winter times are dark. There's often animals all over the place. Uh, So it's really an amazing place that really is captivating every time I go there. And for this project, scientists are going to be getting off of ships and working on that sea ice. Tell me a little bit about where the light's going to be coming from, because it's dark there in the winter. Will you be using spotlights, or how will that work? Yeah, when we first get there in the winter, it'll be dark for a number of months, uh, and the ship will provide a lot of light with, you know, big spotlights. Uh, But we're actually going to try to minimize the use of those big spotlights because we don't want to affect the biology there that we're also trying to study. Uh, And so really we'll be using headlamps, uh, ideally red headlamps, that will help to minimize the impact on the biology but allow us to kind of work on, you know, our, our smaller focused projects. Scientists from several disciplines will be involved in this project, but is there a common question that you'll be looking to answer in different ways? Yeah, really the sea ice is this kind of central focus for all of us. Uh, Many scientists are coming from different disciplines. You know, I'm an atmospheric scientist. There will be biologists on board, chemists on board, looking at the sea ice, the ocean, the atmosphere, in all these different ways. But we're all largely focused on this kind of central question about the sea ice and its changes and how that ultimately affects everything else. You know, reaching from the weather to ecosystems and implications for uh, resource development and food supplies and more. Because the sea ice is more than just ice that's on land or on continents. It's swirling around in the ocean. Yeah, it's floating. And so 
sea ice does not affect things like sea level because it's already floating on the sea. But it is really important in our global system in general. Uh, it reflects a lot of sunlight, and so as the ice melts back, we change how much sunlight is reflected. And there's many other areas in which it's, it's really vital to the Arctic and the global system. We mentioned that you've been back and forth in this part of the world for 22 years. How have you seen things change in that period? The sea ice has changed a lot. You know, 22 years ago, I was out there on my first Arctic mission on a ship that was uh, adrift in the sea ice, and we could no longer do that same drift. You know, now uh, in the summertime, that area is open ocean. So that's a big change, a big meltback. I've also seen important changes around kind of some of the land surfaces in, in uh, northern Canada uh, and elsewhere around Greenland where you see from year to year changes in the land surface uh, in melting permafrost and similar processes. Your personal field of study is in atmospheric science, specifically clouds. What, if anything, is different about clouds in the Arctic? Clouds are just truly amazing in the Arctic, and that's what's drawn me there for the last 22 years. One thing that is uh, particularly unique about Arctic clouds is the prevalence of what are called mixed-phase clouds. And these are clouds where there's liquid water, and ice water both together in the same cloud at temperatures that are below the freezing point. And so the, the really the confounding aspect of this is why is there liquid water when the temperatures are below the freezing point? And that's something that we're studying right now. We've been studying for a while, and Mosaic will provide lots of observations to help us better understand some of the processes that lead to the formation of liquid water clouds and ultimately the really important effects that they have uh, on the system. You mentioned that mission you were on at the beginning of your career. Have there been others that stationed people out on the ice like this? And how is Mosaic different? So the first mission that I you know, partook in in the Arctic was called Sheba. And this was where we froze a Canadian icebreaker in the, the sea ice north of Alaska. And that was for a full year. And there have been a number of other uh, kind of smaller vessels frozen in, uh, dating back to more than 100 years ago. So th- we are kind of building on this past of explorers going to the Arctic, but we're doing so now in, in a way that's, first off, in the current Arctic, which is different than the Arctic in the past, but more so now it's, it's harnessing all this new modern technology we have to really probe uh, the essential processes in a way that we've never really been uh, able to do before. Let's get back to some of those nitty-gritty human details. You'll have 100 people on the ship anchored in sea ice at any given time. It feels like there would be nowhere to escape. Yeah, there will be nowhere to escape. Um, You know, sharing rooms, close quarters, eating all your meals together, not many places to go. Uh, It will be certainly way more crowded than I'm used to. Uh, You know, I live out in the countryside. So that will be a challenge. Uh, On the other hand, it's an opportunity because... You don't often get to sit there and eat every meal with your colleagues and develop this rapport that actually ultimately pays off in the form of really good science, really collaborative science, where we kind of amplify the work of each other. And these scientists are coming from many different countries, speaking many different languages. How do you communicate? Yes, right now we have scientists involved in Mosaic from 19 countries. We keep getting more every day. You know, fortunately for myself, the language of science right now is English. And so that makes it kind of easy for us to communicate in in terms of our spoken language. But importantly, we're also speaking a variety of languages in terms of our disciplines. And that's one of the biggest challenges for Mosaic is how do we talk? How do I, as an atmospheric scientist, talk to that biologist or talk to someone who studies the sea ice uh, in a way that ultimately we can harness the best pieces of our work to really cut across this Arctic system and develop the understanding we need. You're going to be there during the winter with no daylight. What about depression known as SAD or seasonal affective disorder? 
that can be an issue. Uh, a lot of time on the ships will have full spectrum lighting to help with that. But, you know, each person responds in their own way. I will say that the last time I was out in the, in the Arctic wintertime, I didn't even notice the sun was down for a number of weeks because it was just so amazing, right? I was so absorbed in all the amazement of all the uh, these new scenes in the Arctic that I didn't even realize it was dark. Uh, then eventually it started to set in, but I think that, you know, ultimately for me, at least, uh, th- this amazement factor kind of overwhelmed the lack of sunlight. The way you describe the Arctic, the ice, and the animals, I'd say it's almost romantic. Is it for you a romantic place? It is very romantic. I continue to see scenes that just really make me stop and look in, in wonder. This happens whether it's you know a full moon rising uh, over sea ice pack or you know it's a polar bear. And given the changes that you're seeing, is it sad for you personally to see those? Yeah, that, that's a kind of a tough question. I mean, you're always rooting for the ice at some level, right? I mean, and as the ice melts back, that does feel like we're losing something. Although really, you know, as a scientist, I'm more motivated by the knowledge. You know, can we learn what's happening and ultimately make decisions that are appropriate with the, the best information? And, you know, if the, if the Arctic melts back more, you know, that's one potential pathway for the Earth system. And it will still be an amazing place. You know, I guess I'm torn. I'm on both sides of that fence. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful trip. Great. Thank you for having me on. Matthew Shoup is an atmospheric scientist with the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at CU Boulder. He's a leader of the Mosaic Project that stands for Multidisciplinary Drifting Observatory for the Study of Arctic Climate. Over the next year, 600 scientists from around the world will travel to the Central Arctic to participate. In a nondescript brick building on the far side of the Eagle County Regional Airport, there's a -a one-of-a-kind military schoolhouse, the High Altitude Army National Guard Aviation Training Site, known by its initials to many helicopter pilots as HATS. Colorado's congressional delegation loves to tout its presence in the state. CPR's Caitlin Kim went to the school to find out what makes it special. Well, welcome to HATS. Thank you. Glad good, to be here. Yeah, good Lieutenant Colonel Britt Reed is commander of HATS in Gypsum, Colorado, the only facility of its kind in the military. A helicopter pilot himself, he's proud of the work the instructors and staff are doing here. They make the extraordinary look ordinary. The extraordinary is flying helicopters at high altitudes or any type of environment where air pressure is lower. They call it the three H's, high, hot, and heavy. You see, as helicopters go higher or the temperature gets hotter, the air gets thinner and provides less lift, while the engine has to work harder. Learning how to calibrate power in those situations is what Chief Warrant Officer Ethan Jacobs teaches, and he says it's more art than science. It'd be like looking at how you get across town. You know, one person might take a certain route, another person would take a different route for different reasons. And our job is to kind of guide people to make those decisions, not to give them the answer. Approximately 375 aviators are expected to pass through HATS this year. They get students from across the armed forces, as well as foreign military allies, such as Norway and Saudi Arabia. Lieutenant Commander Sam Hill is with the Coast Guard in Port Angeles, Washington. 
He's been flying helicopters for 12 years and still says he's learning a lot at HATS. All the different factors that you might encounter, um, be it wind, temperatures, um, or lower pressure altitude. Because if an aviator's not ahead of it... It can bite you. Bite you how? Well, you can find yourself in a really dangerous situation. Like a crash. HATS began in 1985 as Vietnam-era aviators saw a need to train younger pilots in the high, hot, and heavy environment. Instructors like Chief Warrant Officer Mike Felton says former students tell them that what they learned at HATS helped them at home or when they're deployed to places like Afghanistan. It's something his mentor told him would happen. And he basically said, you are saving lives by working up here. And, and I totally believe that because we go and we train pilots, they go off and defend our country and do the things that we're asking them to do. And we're giving them a foundation and a skill set to do that and to come back home. And having the Colorado mountains as the classroom provides a unique opportunity. We're in a Black Hawk helicopter flying over Hatz's one million acre training area, which includes public lands and some of the state's 14ers. They have more than 100 different landing zones in the area. Again, HATS Commander Lieutenant Colonel Reed. It's a um, very special training area that can't be replicated anywhere in the world. But the cool thing is we can replicate a uh, landing zone or the conditions that you'd face just about anywhere in the world. Whiteouts to brownouts to all manner of terrain features, from ridges and saddles to canyons and pinnacles. They have agreements with the National Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management not to use the same landing zones every day and to report the frequency of use. Democrats in Colorado's congressional delegation want to increase the protections on some of the land around here, which opponents fear could limit where and how hats can train. Reed can't comment on proposed legislation, but he does see why opponents might be concerned. For them, it's, it's just important that we we keep our capabilities that we've got right now. Their location also gives the HATS crew the opportunity to be good neighbors. In recent years, they've started working with Vail Mountain Rescue and Mountain Rescue Aspen. HATS flies the teams around and hoists them down to the ground. This year alone, they've helped in 21 rescues that saved 30 lives. Jordan White with Mountain Rescue Aspen says the teams and air crews have also started practicing together. The terrain that we're working in is um, something we're good at and we're using a resource that's really good at what they do. So I think combining the two has been really good for everybody. White says the teamwork with HATS has become a model and there's more of this type of collaboration in other parts of the state. But Reed says the rescue work is just a bonus. The main mission is still to train aviators and air crews. HATS is currently run by the Army National Guard, but he'd like to see it get more recognition by becoming a Department of Defense schoolhouse bringing an instructor from every armed uniform service there. That's our strategic goal. Hopefully we can get the Pentagon to buy off on it. Until then, they'll keep doing what they've been doing, teaching aviators how to make the extraordinary look ordinary in the highest elevations of Colorado. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Temperatures in the Rocky Mountains have risen by a degree or two across the region over the last century. That might seem modest, but the National Park Service says that in some places, invasive species are on the rise and there's less water for plants and animals. Swiss bicyclist Florian Reber is documenting these changes as he rides the continental divide from Vancouver to New Mexico, blogging and filming a documentary. We spoke with him by Skype last week. Welcome, Florian. Hello. Great to be with you. You're traveling the continent in a way that very few people do. 
Tell me about the signs of climate change you're seeing as you cycle. Well, Avery, um, the, um, those signs are actually um, sometimes quite easy to see, um, unfortunately. unfortunately. Um, the spread of wildfires, uh, the frequency and the intensity of it, and then obviously the, um, the scenery it uh, leaves behind. I mean, those are some very obvious impacts um, of climate change that one can see when cycling in those remote areas. You're in the middle of your ride right now. Where are you? I just got into uh, Del Norte uh, in Colorado today. And um, yeah, so it's been about uh, 3,000 miles over the last 55 days or so. And we mentioned earlier that you're riding the Continental Divide Trail. After you finish that, you're going to ride the coast of California. And this is a three-month trip. Tell me a little bit about your pace and the logistics. Are you camping every day? Yes, I'm camping a lot, but not all the time. So I think out of the, I think, 60-ish days or so I've been on the road, there were like 55 days in the tent. Some days I was actually hosted by some of the amazing people that I have met uh, on this ride. And back in Switzerland, when you're not biking, you consult with policymakers about sustainability. I want to know a little bit about how that background helps you with this project. I'm a trained political scientist and um, I have worked um, not only in policy, but really like at the intersection of um, the public and the private sector and has um, kind of opened up my perspective. And I got really like obviously interested in the issue of climate change and the repercussions it has on um, our societies, our economies uh, and on uh, public policy. And um, because I'm passionate about the outdoors, I love the mountains, and I wanted to combine that, let's say, expertise I have gathered in climate change and, and sustainability um, with like a more of an outdoors experience and go meet um, with people that are seeing those changes firsthand. And talking to those people along the way is actually a key part of your project. In British Columbia, you spoke with Guja, artist and former president of the Council of the Haida Nation. What is he seeing? So I met Guja on the very first day of my trip. He was really outspoken about the climate impacts they they are seeing ever more often up there. And um, that includes droughts like you would never imagine on a wet coast like northern British Columbia. I mean, this is we're talking about wet um, coastal rainforest. But um, he said over the last winters, they have even experienced their first winter droughts, which is unheard of. And this obviously impacts um, nature. And there is this one plant um, which is called salal. It's a very important plant for the local community, but also for animals that feed off its berries. And he described how all of a sudden this plant is dying off. It's one of the toughest plants can withstand uh, cold and warm temperatures, but nevertheless it's now really dying off at a large scale. And um, scientists, they, they think it's because of climate change. Are you also running into folks who don't believe in climate change or who don't believe that there's anything that people can do about it? I have understanding for people um, who feel like powerless to say, like, well, what can we do about it? This is one of the big challenges about climate change, that it needs like a global solution. It needs collaboration. No one action by no one single government uh, or certainly not um, individual will solve the, the issue. But I have met a lot of people that have talked to me about how uh, the changes they observed and that they feel like, yes, we have to do something about it, 
regardless of somebody's like political attitudes in general. You've met some folks in rural areas that are very committed to sustainable and climate-conscious agriculture. Can you tell me a little bit about the situation in Paradise Valley, Montana in particular? So here's the story. For one, like for a very long time, the traditional way of doing agriculture and ranching means that um, farmers, ranchers use a lot of chemicals and fertilizers. And the use of those fertilizers and chemicals is actually degrading soils. So soil health has massively degraded, which is a big problem for farmers because uh, productivity um, declines and then you have to add more and more inputs. So your costs go up. So I have met a rancher that set up a new business to improve soil health. And this is all about regenerative agriculture. And you add a compostia tract to improve the soil health, the microbiological life in the soil, which has very positive impacts on the productivity for the farmers. And also it it lessens their input costs because they don't need those fertilizers and chemicals anymore. And at the same time, um, those more healthy soils, um, they actually store much more biomass and that means that they store more carbon, and which then goes back to um, actually reducing emissions through more sustainable agriculture. And that's a really interesting and really scalable um, solution, and it points to the fact how agriculture doesn't only have to be a problem that contributes to warming, but it also really can be a solution. You've also been talking to a number of scientists along the way. In Grand Teton National Park, you met with a phenologist, somebody who studies seasonal timing of ecological events, Tim Bloom. And he told you that plants and flowers are blooming three weeks earlier than in the 70s. What are the implications of that? The fact that plants bloom earlier can uh, create a mismatch in between when animals um, are used to feeding off plants and when those plants are actually having their their berries or maybe their pollen for for bees. So um, uh, animals kind of then get confused and um, they might have to go look for food elsewhere. It creates some disturbances in the ecosystem. And uh, for the animal and plant world, this is, you know, making life more complicated, so to say. So animals and plants, they can actually get out of sync. Tell me about who you're talking to in Colorado. So in Colorado, I have talked with a firefighter who lives up in Jamestown, and um, he's the the deputy chief of the Left Hand Canyon and Fire Department. And, well, obviously, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, the increased frequency and intensity of wildfires is one of the uh, most obvious impacts of warming um, in the Rockies. But the challenge goes beyond warming, and there is an important um, human element to to this uh, to the increased complexity linked to to wildfires. Um, and the problem is the following: so over the years, many more people have actually moved to the Front Range and and other areas where you basically live in a fire ecology. And so you have more people living um, in this beautiful place. Maybe some of them are also trying to get away from places that are getting warmer. But the fact is, more people live there now, and um, there is more more property there, more property to be protected by the firefighters. And that sometimes can lead to a situation that this is a natural fire ecology, like wildfires are an important part of um, the natural um, ecosystem there. But they are also becoming like more intense, more frequent, uh, and they're actually happening 
all year round now. I mean, there, there's no more like a fire season where, you know, it starts in April and it ends in October. He said this is happening like all year round. And you were talking with a firefighter who had some real firsthand knowledge. As you cycle your blogging and making this documentary, what's the power of talking with people about the changes they're seeing in their backyard and showing it? It is really valuable to talk with people about what is changing in our backyards. So one element where climate science was not very effective in reaching people is that by necessity, it's always talking what happens in 2030, 2050, all very important for policymaking, for the private sector, but it doesn't really speak to people that you live in their daily lives and maybe have other things to worry about. So bringing it back to the present day, um, I think is really important. And secondly, when we talk about climate change, we often hear about things that here, like also not only far away in the future, but also geographically far away. Like um, a lot of people might think about the polar bear somewhere um, up north that doesn't have like uh, enough ice anymore and is starving, um, which is a very important concern, but people can't relate to it. In the US, you have those amazing landscapes, this amazing wildlife, those amazing national parks that, that people love and that people identify with. So I, I believe there is strong value in um, communicating with people about how those landscapes are impacted by climate change and how it is really also like impacting the lives of local communities. Florian, thank you so much for joining us and have a safe ride. Thank you so much for having me. Florian Reber is riding through the Rockies, documenting the effects of climate change on people, plants, and animals. He spoke with me via Skype while in Colorado. He's blogging the experience at talesofchange.earth and plans to release a documentary late next year. In theory, the outdoors are for everyone, though people of color have been historically underrepresented in outdoor recreation. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce recently spent a Saturday in the mountains with a group trying to change that. 11 Mile State Park, a bit more than an hour's drive west of Colorado Springs. Standing on the shore of the reservoir here, 10-year-old Zaire Abdullah Jordan has a goal. Catch a fish. Reasonable enough plenty of fish in that water. Trouble is, the wind's blowing right in our face. Just casting hard enough to get the lure to actually land in the water at all seems Herculean. Yeah, that's part of the fun of it, right? I mean... Zaire's grandfather, Warren Tyson, breathing in that mountain air and focusing on the bright side. Man, I just want to be with my family. Be out here, you know what I'm saying, and just enjoy it, you know, just enjoy the outdoors, Colorado. The group Tyson is fishing with here on the lakeshore is all African-American. For some, it's a totally new experience. I haven't ever been fishing. Carrie Austin's wearing a tan sun hat. Her age, who knows? I don't tell you my age, honey. (laughs) But she is here, rod in hand, not daunted by the windy task ahead. Well, it looks fine to me, and I would like to try it. Moving here and there, getting people set up, showing the basics, is Patricia Cameron. You don't have any weight on here, so it's not going to go far. She's an outdoor writer and owner of Black Packers. Black Packers is a business I founded in order to help get people who may have economic barriers or issues with getting that initial knowledge or experience out in the outdoors. The idea is if people of color know they can go on a trip together, they might feel more comfortable. 
Cameron herself, working in the outdoor industry, says there are a lot of times she feels left out. Be it background or how I got into the outdoors or how I use the outdoors or just who I am as a black American woman. And what's awesome about this is we get to come together and we have a lot of those shared experiences just based on that. And that makes you comfortable when you have people around you that share that. This is Black Packers' first summer campout. About 30 people are here, back from fishing, setting up tents, waiting for a leave-no-trace workshop coming up. Cameron has the camping essentials ready for those who don't own them. She's given scholarships to about half the participants to come on the trip for free, paid largely out of her own pocket. The concrete jungle is nothing compared to this. I like being out here. (laughs) Jahela Rose Walker and her son came on a couple of those scholarships. Walker lives in Denver, native Coloradan. As a busy mom, it's just been a while since she's spent much time outside. In the serious outdoors, maybe probably about four years at least. She saw information about the campout on her Facebook feed. Walker thinks the biggest barrier keeping more people like her from enjoying the outdoors is not a lack of desire, but as she says, a lack of means. Now, a lot of Caucasian people in general can live a normal life on a one-person income and make enough to have the time to go outdoors. We don't have that privilege, unfortunately. Black Packers founder Patricia Cameron hopes to build her organization into something bigger. More camping, more scholarships, and also a gear lending service to make it possible for people to give something in the outdoors a try without having to spend a bunch of money. Like this weekend packed with activities, she wants to present a lot of options. Not everything has to hit with everybody, but there's a variety of things. And so I'm hoping that at least one activity will inspire somebody to try that activity again. It's getting on toward evening. The charcoal barbecue is churning out stacks of hamburgers and brats. Carrie Austin, that woman with the tan sun hat, she sits in a camp chair under a tree saving up her energy for the moonlit hike in a few hours and taking it all in. I like the open space. I like the expanse. You know, you don't feel like you're crowded. The weather is wonderful. So I'm a happy camper. From 11 Mile State Park, Dan Boyce, CPR News. When we come back, a unique piece of Colorado's history goes on display for the first time in more than a century. Plus, what's behind the CU-Nebraska rivalry? We'll track its origins back to the 1800s. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On her way to visit her boyfriend in the United States, Paola, a woman from Chile, is stopped at customs. And she never actually makes it out of the airport. At any point, is somebody explaining to you exactly what you've done wrong? Yes, I try marijuana in a place which is not legal for immigrants. That was my mistake. On the next episode of On Something Love in the Time of Legalization, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. In the early 1900s, Denver had an inferiority complex. It wasn't as well connected by railroad as a city to its south. It was being overshadowed by Pueblo. It was not a direct rail link west from Denver. The main obstacle, says Jack Wheeler of History Colorado, were the mountains. No one had the money to build tracks over the continental divide. Well, almost no one. Enter a man named David Moffat. He had amassed his fortune in silver mines. He was so wealthy that he could single-handedly fund, completely finance, the construction of a 
Standard Gauge Mountain Steam Railroad west from Denver, and it was a huge undertaking. Just to get to the Continental Divide, it required 32 tunnels. The people of Denver were so grateful for Moffat's investment that they gave him a gift, a silver cup featuring scenes along the rail line. This cup has been sitting in History Colorado's storage facility for more than a century. It's pretty substantial. It's several feet tall, and it makes you feel this grandiose sense of vision and gratitude. Well, now you have the chance to feel that for yourself. The Moffat Cup goes on display for a year, starting today at Denver Union Station. History Colorado, Colorail, and the Union Station Alliance raised money to do it upright with a nice protective case. It's bulletproof. It has lasers protecting it so that if anything were to go wrong, if the temperature is incorrect or the humidity is too high, people will be notified. And it will rotate because it's up against the wall. And so for proper viewing of all of the scenes that are on each side, it will rotate slowly in the northwest corner of Union Station. That is Jack Wheeler, who adds that David Moffat didn't live to see the finished rail connection west. He died in 1909, about five years after Denver presented him with the enormous silver cup for a project that wouldn't be finished for several more decades. I'm Ryan Warner. Back to you, Avery. A big college football rivalry is returning to Colorado tomorrow. The CU Buffs will face off against the Nebraska Cornhuskers at Folsom Field in Boulder. It's a rivalry that can be traced back to the 1800s and has had unforgettable moments. Like in 1986 when CU broke a 19-game losing streak, defeating Nebraska 20-10. Now they can celebrate. Colorado has beaten Nebraska. The third-ranked team has gone down. Hatcher doing handstands and throwing the ball up. There it is. Three seconds, two seconds, one second. It's over. Colorado 20, Nebraska 10. Listen to it. For a look back on this legendary rivalry, let's hear from Dave Platty, the Associate Athletic Director at CU Boulder. Hi, Dave. Good morning, Avery. Okay, I can't believe a football rivalry can go all the way back to the 1800s. <laughs> Tell me about how well, that got started. Well, Rutgers and Princeton go back 150 years, so they got uh, like 39 years on us or something. <laughs> uh, actually, Nebraska was the first school we played. That was in 1898 was the year. It was our ninth year of football. And it's the first school we played from outside of the state borders. Back in the early days, you played some of the other colleges if they had teams, but if you look at our early schedule, you'd play like the Denver Athletic Club and the Colorado Springs Athletic Club, teams like that. But I think as the train travel improved back in the day, uh, there was really no buses or automobiles much around then, but uh, as train travel improved all over the country, you started seeing teams play uh, other schools that were a little bit further away than they originally had played. So this rivalry, it goes back to as long as CU has been playing out-of-state teams. Yes, so that'd be 122 years. And we heard some sound earlier from that 1986 game where CU beat Nebraska finally. You were there. (laughs) What was the reaction like in the crowd? It was, first of all, they were number three, and we we came into that year with high expectations after finally having a winning season the year before, but we opened up 0-4. They probably thought they would just come in and walk all over us, and we played a great uh, defensive game, and we took a 17-7 lead on the first play of the fourth quarter, and they never had the ball again, trailing by just one score, so kept them at bay the rest of the game, and I remember when we intercepted the ball, it was Boulder's own Barry Remington, intercepted 
to the ball with like 16 seconds to go. The fans rushed the field then. So we had to clear the field just so we could run a couple of plays to run out the clock officially. Uh, so then they ran on the field again and tore down the goalpost. <laughs> so it was, I had never seen that here. I, it was my eighth year at CU at the time, but you know, I don't know if uh, fans rushed the field much in the seventies or before it was starting to become more of a thing to do once ESPN was born and they would show fans rushing the field everywhere. So I think they played a big role in that happening, but uh, it was quite the scene to see that. And we left the scoreboard on all weekend. And they rushed the field before the game was even over. Was that game a big turning point in the rivalry? We actually dubbed it at the time the turning point in Bill McCartney's 13-year career, not knowing we would go on to much greater things, but we kind of felt finally getting over the hump after not beating them since the mid-60s that, uh, okay, we've got kind of our signature win in the first stage of his career. Let's go out and see what else we can do. And sure enough, we played Nebraska three years later at Fulton, and the winner was going to have the inside track to the Orange Bowl if they didn't screw up the last three games of the year, which we didn't. But we beat them 27-21 in 1980. And at that point, we had collapsible goalposts. We were able to collapse them so the fans couldn't tear them down. But uh, we did leave the scoreboard on once again all weekend. <laughs> this rivalry, it died down for a while after 2010 <clears throat> until last year when the teams faced off in Lincoln. What's ramping it back up again? Well, first of all, back in 20, uh, 2010, we both announced that we were leaving the Big 12 Conference. Us, of course, in the Pac-12, Nebraska to the Big 10. So the non-conference schedules were pretty much done for the next decade. College football is the only sport that schedules games 15 years out. Nobody else does it more than a year. So uh, there were really no openings to resume the rivalry, and I don't even think we really explored it until I believe in 2013 or so to do a four-game set. So that's how the series was reborn last year in Lincoln, then here, and then in 23, they will come here and we'll go up to Lincoln in 2024. You know, sometimes these sports rivalries, they can get pretty vicious. How heated has it gotten? You know, there's been other games with other teams where we had some uh, incidents. Miami in 90, 1993 was the biggest one for us where we had teams had 12 players ejected because the Big East referees lost control of the game. As far as Nebraska goes, the teams have respected each other you know, forever, and the bad will or the ill will sometimes between some of the fans that you know felt the need to crack jokes about in Nebraskans for whatever reason and kind of started on sports talk radio in Denver in the mid-'80s. But by far, the teams really on the field have had very, very few incidents. Other than Tom Osborne when you're trying to stop Ralphie from running by their bench. (laughs) (laughs) How did he try to stop Ralphie from running by their bench? They would kind of come out and take the field and then kind of inch out further closer to the field to try to get in their path. And then he would complain to the conference office how dangerous it was. And the conference basically told them, uh, Tom, don't worry about it. Eventually, our risk management people thought, you know what, we should probably take the field first anyway. So there is nobody or very few people on the sideline when Ralphie runs by. So that's the reason we do take the field first. And most home teams don't take it till after the visitor takes the field. Now, you've been at the university for a long time. <laughs> How many of these CU Nebraska games have you been to? So I uh, saw every Nebraska game from 78 to 2010, which was 33. So 34 last year. This is my 35th. 35. Wow. Which ones are the most memorable? 
I would say the first one because they were ranked high and we uh, we were somewhere in the 20s. It was 14-14 at halftime. We're battling them tough. And, you know, how Colorado weather is, the clouds rolled in, the skies darkened, and they outscored us 38 nothing in the second half. But that's my first CU Nebraska game, so I think that's probably why I remember that one. But the others are all wins. The 91 game was a tie, but that's, the wind chill was 12 below. And kind of hard to forget a game where the press box windows are fogging up and you're standing on the counters cleaning up so the media can see out. And then you have to skip forward to 2001. We had a five-year stretch where the games between 1996 and 2000 were decided by a total of 15 points. So, you know, we were just chomping at the bit to just kick them. And that 2001, I think people, most people remember the score, 62 to 36. And once again, we left the scoreboard on all night. (laughs) Do you have any predictions for tomorrow's game? How are the Buffs going to do? Well, Nebraska's been players and their coaches. They've been talking a lot of smack, and Mel Tucker does not like that. He says a good team does their talking on the field as far as with their actions. So he didn't want to see any smart aleck comments from our players this week in the papers. But uh, we're four-point underdogs. We were started out as seven-and-a-half-point underdogs, and I think we're going to win by seven to ten points personally. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see how it goes. Sure. Thanks, Avery. Dave Platy is the Associate Athletic Director at CU Boulder. Tomorrow, the Buffs play the Nebraska Cornhuskers at home. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm your host, Avery Lill, along with Ryan Warner. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Folger, and Alexander McMahon. Max Weissick Newsfellow is Taylor Allen. You're listening to CPR News. CPR News.